just a quick one before this podcast starts, everyone. There is a couple of swear words in it and a very high degree of Yorkshireness, which people may find offensive. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode four of Business Life, the podcast by Food Circle, uh, including me, Paul Simpson, and James Barthorpe, co-founders of Food Circle. Um, and this week we have uh, a, a really inspiring um, guest called Adam Smith, who has founded and is current CEO of the Real Junk Food Project, um, which is uh, an amazing social enterprise. Adam's an amazing guy. Um, yeah, like I said, really inspirational. I think people take a lot of value away from it. We talk about, you know, Adam's um, challenging upbringing and the way he's managed to build a social enterprise on the back of it. Um, we talk about food waste in the UK um, and the problems with that. Um, and yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. So please do. And enough of me waffling off. Let's let's get into it. Let's listen to the episode. Here we go. Enjoy. Right. Welcome, Adam, from the Real Junk Food Project, the founder of the Real Junk Food Project. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, not a problem at all. It's good to have a fellow uh, food waste warrior on the uh, on the podcast. Um, so we'll get into stuff like that, um, and obviously we'll get into your sort of background, how you came to found the Real Junk Food Project, and the progress that you've made over the last um, how many years is it now? Is it seven? Yeah. Seven years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just start off by um, asking you, Adam, how you, um, what your sort of background is, and how you came to um, found the Real Junk Food Project seven years ago. So my background is uh, widely publicised, and uh, I've always been very honest about where I've come from. Um, I decided that after a very unfortunate event ten years ago, pretty much to the day now, actually, two thousand and ten. Uh, I was found and pronounced dead in a car, uh, literally a stone's throw from where I am in the warehouse in Leeds, uh, where I'd grown up. I decided to take my own life and um, I basically, I was dead, I was found dead, I was found by a helicopter, they triangulated my last text message and found me in a field and I was pronounced dead by the police. I missed my heartbeat because I uh, had cocaine in my system, which just kept my heart beating. Um, and I, obviously when I founded the Real Jumper Project, I decided from that day onwards that I wouldn't let anybody get any dirt on me or any kind of skeletons in the closet, you know, to kind of get these sensationalized headlines on me, knowing full well that I was, um, without sounding egotistical, I was going to become a public figure. Um, you know, people were going to look up to me and be inspired by what I was doing. And I couldn't then go, oh, by the way, you know, I used to be addicted to drugs and alcohol and I've been in prison and I've been in care and et cetera. And then to find out through the media, because obviously as you both rightly know as business owners and as people who probably use a lot of social media you know it can be very positive and very negative and so I decided to be very very honest uh, from from day one and said look I've come from this background I, uh, I ended up in care as a kid I ended up in prison as a as a 21 year old very dysfunctional childhood thrown out of school uh, sectioned into mental health units you name it Prozac at 11 years old um, everything really and I was I was a, a bad person. I was a good person doing stupid things, I think. And um, I recently went into therapy in the last two years. And again, and um, I went to the same psychiatrist that I had when I was a child and went back to her and I said, oh, do you remember me, that, that little kid? And she just said I was always an angry little kid, but very smart. And I kind of, I'm going through a, a diagnosis of autism at the moment. And there was a lot of issue around trauma therapy and kind of segregating out the the autistic side of it and then now it's also come to fruition that I am on the spectrum and um, I probably was as a child and it was never picked up so I'm still obviously dealing with a lot of those things at the moment so my background is very very um, eventful uh, I had a lot of adventures I did a lot of dumb stuff uh, to the point where I literally got to those depths and I was even thinking about it yesterday actually and um, speaking to my partner about depression and stuff and um, in, in, in other family members and it got me thinking about it and I think that when you get to those depths if you get to the point where you are going to take your own life and it's not a cry for wolf I mean you literally are this is the end and you, you know there's, there's no two ways about it and I think I did get to that stage even though previously I had cried wolf quite a few times um, I don't think you ever recover from that ever 
because I think very, very few people get there. And those that do get there don't survive. Yeah. You know, mm. once you go to death, you are gone. And those people are not with us anymore. You know, you think about the Robin Williams of the world and those type of figureheads and, uh, you know, they're not with us because they, went, they got to those depths. If you survive that, that never leaves you. And I even think now that I battle with it, but I think I've just come to the point where I'm able to control it better. I have children now, and obviously I have the Real Junk Group Project. So after I'd tried to do this to myself, I decided to go to Australia, um, and, and probably for the wrong reasons, I decided that I was going to do it to try and run away from all my problems. Can't get as far away from Leeds than Melbourne, I think, <laughs> geographically, so far. <laughs> and... You know, I stopped drinking, I stopped doing drugs, I, I discovered myself, I uh, conceived my son out there in, in, in Australia and um, I, I, I founded the Real Jumper Project on the 22nd of February 2013. I was on a farm in uh, North Shepparton, which is three hours north of Melbourne, and I decided that um, I was going to create the Real Jumper Project and feed the world from surplus food that I saw on a farm being fed to pigs. I don't know where the name come from. I don't know why I decided to do that. I, I think it was just a collision of life it came together at that one exact moment. Lots of things led me there. I'd been a chef previously, so I knew about food. I traveled around the world and I'd seen waste. I'd seen poverty. Um, I'd always tried to get into something kind of third sector. I've always, you know, every time I've had a job, I've always been the one that's kind of created the um, program or something, you know, to like do something charitable. I'm always the one that goes, oh, let's, you know, let's come up with this idea and let's do something for the company. I've always been that way inclined. And so obviously when the Real Gym Project was founded um, in, on, on that date, uh, everything just came together. And obviously since then, it's just been a, a journey, a passion and dedication and sacrifice um, leading me to this day now. Yeah, that's an unbelievable story. Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't realise the, uh, yeah. I didn't know about that and your, and your story, to be quite honest with you, but um yeah, it's an unbelievable way of showing, you know, how you can turn your life around, really, isn't it? Like, just... I think one of the funny things was my friend at the time said to me, you might as well stop doing this because you're not very good at it. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty good at most things. Uh, and then to realise that I'm not very good at taking my own life is obviously there was a, a funny side to it, but a serious side. It's like yeah. it made me realise maybe I'm meant to be here for a reason. I know it sounds very cliched, but it, it made me realise that my whole life I've been very, very capable of doing anything I wanted to do. Um, when I was a little kid, I used to hang around with this kid called Tyrone and he used to say I had a gift. He said, no matter what you do or how bad you do things or what stupid stuff you do, you always land on your feet. You've got this gift of just like getting out of situations or, you know, and I've just applied that energy really into the Real Jumper Project. But obviously the outcomes are much more positive than the kind of situations I was getting in all the way up to about 25, really. So it's, you know, it's only five years ago, really. Uh, sorry, mm. 10 years ago. Sorry, I'm not 30, I'm 35. Uh, 10 years ago when, you know, I, I stopped doing all this stuff and, um, you know, to deal recently in the therapy with a lot of the kind of trauma that I was going through for like maybe 15 years uh, of my life and the dysfunctional family structure and the, and the um, kind of addictive personality and the abuse uh, that I had, you know, I've been homeless, I've lived on the streets, I've been addicted to drugs and alcohol, etc. Um, and all that was because I had an addictive personality and I used to just get involved in something and commit like 110%, whether it was drugs or whether it was doing art, and it could have been anything. If you told me to do something, I'd do it and I'd go above and beyond. Um, and there was one situation when I was in primary school where I got thrown out of a class um, for being naughty, I don't know what I'd done, but I was a class clown and I got thrown out and I had to sit outside the head teacher's office. And I think I was in about year four or year five. And I remember the head teacher turning around to me and saying, there's some year sixes that are doing this project and they have to create a poster for fire safety. Like, uh, you know, like you used to have the kind of crossing yeah. the road posters and that was one like for fire safety. And um, so I went and sat with these kids that were older than me and I created a board game um, and we won and I was in the paper with like Nella the Elephant, this big red elephant. And I went to McDonald's and got a free burger with like the year six group and uh, it was in the papers and it was just me coming up with a stupid idea. And so like going through therapy, I've realized that I've always been this way inclined. I've always had, you know, crazy ideas and I've always wanted to give back and I've always thought about other people. Um, I've just never been able to channel my energy into anything. And obviously now I am. And as you both rightly know, through working with us and having a relationship with us, um, you know, it's now doing positive things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you think that that sort of those difficulties that you've had in your life and those uh, those struggles that you've had, do you think that 
fed this desire to kind of help other people once you realized what your purpose was in life and what you wanted to do? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's two types of people within the two types of people. You know, there's the people that have been there and done it and there's the people that haven't and want to give back. And within the people that have been there and done it, I think there's people that have had that experience um, and don't really know what to do. Whereas I've, I've been homeless, I've lived on the streets, I've been addicted to drugs. So when it comes to dealing with people like that, I have a very unorthodox way of dealing with it. I have a very holistic approach to dealing with it rather than trying to... Um, kind of preach to people like oh look at me I've been uh, so you know addicted to alcohol and drugs therefore you should follow me and listen to me and because I know the answers I don't know the answers but I can kind of sympathize and empathize with people so a great example is I've just had it literally just had it before this meeting a guy come up to me in the warehouse and he's like I've been sent here for another project um I've currently got a tag on and I was like have you been in prison and he's like yeah I went me too um and just had a, like, and a laugh with him. I was like, what did you do? And he went, oh, fraud. I went, oh, was it anybody like really rich and powerful? And he just started laughing at me. And I don't think he expected me to do that. I think he expected like, you know, sit down, write out a form, you know, what, mm. you know and, and all the kind of bureaucratic nonsense and stuff. And I started laughing with him. I said, look, as long as I don't give you access to my bank account, and then I know you're not going to do anything stupid. I said, but if you want to just help out in the warehouse and crack on with everybody else, then you're more than welcome. I said, it says kindness above the doors. As long as you're kind, you're more than welcome. And he just had a laugh and he said, thank you. He said, because I've applied for loads of jobs and I've applied for volunteer and no one gives me a chance. And I just have this kind of like approach to people. I just treat them like a fucking human being and you probably get back a human being in return. And I think because I've been there, instead of preaching to them, I kind of just understand and empathize that, you know what? They've probably been in a really shit situation. This guy's been in prison. It's probably not been the best. And, um, but who am I to say that I understand? Because I don't, I didn't go to the same prison as him. I didn't go for the same reasons as him. I don't know what he's been through, um, but I can kind of empathize in some way, shape or form. So yeah, I think, um, the, the, my past difficulties, I think, helped me to understand that. But I think it's also about my approach to it as well, about making sure that I just treat everybody like human beings. I think we lack that a lot, uh, not just in the kind of the public and private sector, but I think even even in the third sector, I think there's a lot of humanity missing from it at the moment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, uh, it goes like empathy is something that's, uh, you know, needs, is underrated for sure and needs to be, um, you know, there needs to be more of it, especially business and doing business. It's just like, it's it's sort of like cool to be tough in business, isn't it? Um, yeah. I know with... You, you, with sort of different sectors like social enterprise as a commercial enterprise but i think there's probably especially especially in our bit it's like you know you've got to be um you know ruled with nine fist and negotiation all this sort of thing you've got to be uh you know uh tough and all this sort of thing it's just i think i think it needs changing really on the um, yeah. outlook on that it's but also the, the portrayed in the public eye as well if you think about the apprentice all these kind of shows and, you know, you're fired and, that, and having that kind of, like you said, iron fist and that mm. attitude to, I mean, even like the Gordon Ramsay's of the world, you think of all his shows where he's in there swearing and shouting in people's faces and it's like, that's just a human being, man. Like, who the bloody hell do you think you are? Like, why do you think that it's okay to treat people that way? It doesn't matter that you're a freestyle, Michelin star chef, so what? You're a dick. Um, you know, I, I've, I've always, even in my kitchens, I've worked in, you know, they've been quiet, they've been, um, um, you know, decent, hardworking places where everybody just feels like they're part of a team rather than me just being a boss and shouting because I just don't work. Because I know if you do that to me, I to fuck off and I'll walk out. It's, it's as simple as that. So I won't do it to anybody else. Yeah, I think I think people have almost come to expect that as well in business. Like we we obviously deal with consumers and stuff like that. And I think, you know, from our customer service point of view, we like to pride ourselves on that and think that we're really good at it. But I think people come in all guns blazing sometimes if something's gone wrong or they're not happy with something because they expect um, people in, you know, in companies, in business to yeah. to basically let them down, really. I think a lot of people, um, yeah. a lot of people are lacking that kind of empathy that we talk about. And that leads to the general public feeling like, if I try and deal with this company or this organization, it's just going to be a nightmare because um, they don't care about me. And then when you actually do, it, yeah. it transforms people's people's yeah. view. And it's exactly like the thing that you said with the guy that's been in prison. Like as soon as you try and just relate to that person on a normal human to human level and have that empathy with them for, for why they've come into that situation, it just makes the yeah. whole thing a lot better. Of course, of course. And, um, you know, obviously I mentioned earlier about going through the kind of diagnosis of autism um, I completely struggle with empathy and w the reason why I've gone back into therapy in the last two years is because for the previous five years um, it was if you don't want to be here fuck off you know mm -hmm. if you know uh, like I'll just crack on anyway 
and it got to the point where somebody mentioned to me, you know, there's lots and lots of people leaving and there's lots of people coming as well because everyone loves what you're doing, but they don't kind of want to stay around because they're just another person. And I really, really had to focus on, I struggle with the empathy side of things, but I had to focus on retention of staff and volunteers and empowering them and handing over and giving autonomy. So we've now hired two members of HR who would literally deal with all the people before I do. And I've got people working on social media and customer service because I'd just be like, fuck off then. Um, Realise the concept, not as an individual, but more of an organisation. Like you just get known as the organisation that uh, with Adam's personality. And so we really, really, really worked on how do I remove my personality away from the organisation so it can stand its own two feet. But I also had to work on myself first before we did that. Um, And that was one of the key things that I think I had to achieve. And I think a lot of entrepreneurial type people, not necessarily people in business, but more entrepreneurial, more like founders and CEOs and people that are going into this and with ideas. I think they forget that part of it is that the hardest thing about anything that you do is to work on yourself. And no matter what, you know, somebody will find faults and always be a better person and um, a better business person and a better entrepreneur. And, you know, a lot of people get lost in that because you're too focused and, and passionate about what it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah. I think there's a massive amount of strength in what you just said about kind of, um, to an extent, obviously work on yourself, but kind of accept the way you are as well. And, you know, mm-hmm. if this if this part of the business is not suited to you and your personality and you just can't make it work, um, then, you know, you yeah, work on yourself, but you can also, you know, pass that on to other people and, and yeah. assign people where, where the skills are, you know, where the skills work, basically. They said, you know, find people who are better than you and hire them. What's the point of hiring people that are not better than you? Because mm-hmm. what does that mean? means nothing. And, I, and I've really taken that on, on board. Um, as somebody who I look up to and, 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 and in awe of in terms of what he achieved, he literally changed the world. And, um, you know, he hired people who were better than him at what he did to, to achieve that. And I think that's, I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is it wasn't Steve Jobs up now and created Apple and made Apple iPhones and then sold them in the shops. You know, he hired people who were better than him to do those things. And that's what he created. He created a product and a team and he was able to then literally change the world with it. Um, and I think a lot of people don't realize that too much is that, and that's the one thing I've had to pull away and do, you know, even in the last year during COVID, we've hired nearly 20 people from HR to finance to bookkeeping. I ain't got a clue about this stuff. You know, I wanted to go out and feed the world. I'm a chef. And, um, and, it, and it's, it's something that you've got to look for within yourself is that even though I think I'm probably the best person I've ever been in my life right now, where I, where I currently am mentally and physically, um, there are still things I don't know. And there's still things I don't care about or don't want to know. So I managed to find people who can do those things and passionate and make them part of that team. Um, and I think it's one of the really key things in terms of success and sustainability of an organization. You know, I'm planning to have three weeks off in January. If I can successfully have three weeks off without a phone call or a text message, um, or after an answer an email, I think that's the biggest sign of success is to be able to step back. And I think a lot of people lose that focus. Yeah, yeah. good good luck with that, mate. Christ, I would absolutely <laughs> love that. <laughs> that is like a, a nirvana, isn't it, for a business owner that being able to have a week off without having to do a a, t- yeah. a text or an email. But um, <clears throat> we will get there, though. I think. We, yeah, we will. Um, it's a similar position here, to be quite honest. We're, we're literally, you know, having those conversations now about what do we need to get rid of in terms of me and James, and I think it comes to um, uh, self awareness for sure. Because I, I think a lot of people. Um, and it comes down to that lack of empathy thing is I think a lot of business owners and stuff have that sort of selfish view on things where, you know, they either want to do everything because uh, they're sort of either arrogant thinking that nobody else can mm-hmm. do it or um, that, yeah, they want their, their business to be them. Do you know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, um, that's where sometimes a business, the personality of the person that runs it comes across. Yeah. I'm just going to ask that actually. Mm-hmm. E- ego. Like ego yeah. can get in the way, I think sometimes, can't it? It, it does, and it and, and 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 I'll say this quite often, honestly. Like I have an ego. Everybody that's in my position, or a founder, or a, an inventor, or a creator of something, an innovator, we've got egos. You know, there's lots and lots of people with egos. Um, the, the, the organization isn't you, and I had to remove that all the way just from like replying to people on social media. I even now have people coming to me saying, oh, we've realized that you're not on social media anymore now because the comments are quite different. And it's like people could tell that it was Adam replying or it was Adam, you know, responding to people. And and that's not fair on the organization. That's not fair on the people that invest in us and support us and, you know, benefactors, et cetera. So it's, it's one of the toughest things you have to do. And it's one of the best pieces of advice I ever had. When I was in the cafe in, in Leeds when I first started it, obviously I was in the kitchen seven days a week. 
And to think back now that, you know, I was doing that is absolutely mental. But this uh, an ambassador of the project came to me and said, um, you know, you've got to you've got to step away. And I was like, am I going to step away? I'm the only one that can cook in the kitchen. I'm the only one that can open the doors. I'm the only one that can serve the customers. And, you know, I've got volunteers coming and help me, but I need to coordinate them. And who's going to do this? Who's going to do this? And he's like, well, that's what you've got to find. You've got to get out, find a way to get, what does it look like? And if he can't, it doesn't work. And I think I was like, but it does work. Obviously, we're feeding waste people. We're stopping waste waste. Of course it works. And he's like, it doesn't. And he made me realize he sat me down. This was like after like six months. And I was like in the midst of like the height of the project where we were getting loads of attention and cameras were there every single day. Film knows I'm like buzzing full on ego of like, yep, I'm going to go do this interview. And then I'm going to go in the kitchen and cook. Look at me doing everything, burning out like an absolute idiot. Um, and you had to stop. I had to stop and I had to pull away and I had to realize that this isn't about me. But if the project is sustainable and successful and grows a bigger impact, um, that's the biggest sign of success if I can remove myself from it. But it will be founded by me. It's just I'm not in the kitchen cooking for the 15 children yesterday for Christmas meals. That's from the catering staff, Emma. I'm not in the warehouse now running 15, 20 members of staff and volunteers, you know, and, and filling cars up and delivering Christmas hampers. That's Mark who's in our warehouse at the moment. So, but obviously it still revolves around me. I'm still kind of in charge of stuff, but I know I still have responsibility but you have to let go. And I just feel, I met a guy in Scotland who was doing a project around uh, teaching homeless people how to make bread. And it was absolutely brilliant idea. And I said, amazing. And I said, who cooks all the bread? And he said, me. I said, it's on and does the dough and proves it. Obviously, being a chef, I knew a bit about making bread. And um, he said, me. I said, oh, who teaches the homeless people? And he's like, oh, me. I said, when do you actually sleep? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm knackered. I don't sleep. And I've been doing it for like six years. I was like, mate, you're going to die. Like, you'll die a very, very early death. And no one's going to remember you, but they'll remember this guy who just like made bread with homeless people. I said, people will remember you more if you're able to step back and you can train people to make bread and then you can train homeless people. You can do it more on wider scale. I said, that's when people remember. This is the guy that created this and look at the impact that it had. And he just didn't believe me at all. And I think he's still doing it, to be honest. And that was like three years ago. Um, no one really heard him because he's too busy in the bloody kitchen making bread. Um, but I was like, you've got to step away. Like even time now with yourself, you know, being able to come in and just have time and spending time and telling people about the project and engaging people into it. I understand more. That's more about my role now um, because obviously I'm passionate about it. I'm the founder of it. But I, I, you know, I was in the warehouse earlier, and it, when you messaged me to say, you know, remember this, I was like, shit, I, I need to stop. You know, get out of the bloody way. <laughs> as are coming through this and it's really really difficult and i'm not saying it's really easy for people and i can imagine how hard it is for people who are you know inventors and creators and idealists and, and people that are founders to go i'm going to stop because it's really hard but like we talked about earlier like you have to do it for yourself i look at pictures of me on the wall now i've got a picture up here when joshua was born my son who's seven now he was born a month after i started the project and i look really unwell you know, I look very, very gaunt. I've got red around my eyes. My skin's really bad. I looked exhausted. My hair was an absolute mess. And people come up to me now and say, you look really, really well. Or people who knew me from before. And I was like, it's because I, I have to take a day off. You know, I have to rest. I have to remove myself from the project, but the project can still keep going. But it took a lot to get there. You know, there's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of commitment to get to that stage. And you do have to do it. Um, but I think you've always got to keep it in the back of your mind that someday you're going to have to step back. Um, and when that happens, obviously, is, is, is better for you, not for the organisation. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to people, Adam, who are in that position? I mean, we're sort of um, we're in that position now where, like we say, we're, yeah. trying to, we're scaling up and we're trying to um, move some of the responsibility on so that it's not all revolves around us all the time. Um, but what, what advice would you give to people in that position? What steps did you take to um, to be able to remove yourself and to say these things take care of themselves without without me needing to be there every day? I mean, uh, the biggest bit of advice I got was my volunteers at the time um, walked out on me about four or five years ago. He walked out on me and said, oh, I'm leaving because there's no structure. And I was like, there is structure. Like, you know, you come in, you, you weigh food out and it goes out to these people. Of course, there's structure. And he's like, no, there's no structure. And it played on my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm going to message him soon and, and tell him thank you because it was you know, a really amazing piece of advice that's just played on my mind years and years and I think it's the thing you forget about um, going forward is what happens if something falls over? Um, what happens if something stops? What happens if something goes wrong? Where's the infrastructure? Where's the uh, support mechanism? Not for yourselves, but for the organisation as well. So I had to I had to restart the project in 2018. I had a, um, I'll tell you about it in this podcast, but um, it's no one knows really what happened except for me and the people involved. But the project that leads... Um, was with friends and it went wrong and I had to restart the project in 2018, but I had all this knowledge and experience and contacts and relationships. So I could restart it very quickly. 
So the project, as you know now, that you see maybe online, the, the big warehouse is only effectively just over two years old, even though the project as a whole is over seven years old. And um, first of all, don't hire your mates. That's the best piece of advice I can give you. No matter how good they are or how you know uh, how much they offer you, if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. It goes really wrong. Um, and that's not good. But have the support in place. You know, I, I really focused on things which are really boring and no one likes. So HR and finance, for example. Um, I hired a bookkeeper, which kept the autonomy and the impartiality in regards to making payments. I had a finance director and I took risks. And I knew that we didn't have money to pay these people, but I knew that investing in these people meant that I could pull away and start looking at income streams for the organization to make sure we could cover those costs. And it was real serious risks. But if you have a commodity, if you have the service that is of value, then obviously you can generate more of it if you've got the time to focus on it. And then HR, you know, the, the HR structure in terms of recruitment, in terms of processes, in terms of grievances and disciplines and, and the compliance, I really, really invested heavily into HR members of staff. One of them is very, very corporate and very kind of um, uh, into policies and procedures. And the other one's more kind of um, a people person and, and, and coordinates volunteers. And I thought the two of them, and one's male, one's female. And I thought that's a really good balance. And um, it's a really, really good, a, a, a good uh, infrastructure for personnel for people to come on board. So now we have like five, 350 registered volunteers for this month alone because of the kind of Christmas hampers. And it's all being dealt with by our HR team and they've done virtual inductions and they've done physical inductions and they've done allergy awareness training. I have not seen any of it. Um, and then obviously I just see the end product. The person comes to me in the morning. Hi, my name's this person. I've just come today. I've done all my inductions, all my health and safety, everything's done. It means I can just crack on and go, right, here we go. Let's crack on together. And they've done all the crap that I just don't really care about but I know it's really really important and I think a lot of people don't respect or understand especially when it comes to business owners and etc is that this kind of structure will allow me to step away and for grievances and disciplinaries and you know even appraisals and stuff to happen without me they happen uh, impartially away from me they happen independently as the organization and that's the kind of things that I wanted to get to a stage where um, from a personnel point of view and from a financial point of view, the organization could still move forward. It could still carry on. It could, it could change direction. It could do all sorts of things, but it would still have the structure in place. And I think it's, it's incredibly valuable to have it. It's very, very difficult to get to that stage because I didn't know how to create structure. And I think that's one of the things that played in my mind after I got this piece of advice from this random volunteer that literally just walked out. I mean, there's no structure I'm leaving. I mean, it was a passing comment as he was leaving the door. And um, it really, really played in my mind. I was like, well, how do you create structure? Like, what, what is all that about? Like, you know, if somebody wants a job, I'll just pay them and, you know, I'll put them on payroll. Like, that's, that's structure in it. But obviously it isn't. And like we spoke about earlier, you know, I had to hire people that were better than me. I've hired a HR expert. I've got some, you know, support online from financial experts and, and et cetera, telling me these are the kind of things I have in place. And then I've gone out and tried to find the person that understands that. Some people have given us their time voluntary. Some people are now on the payroll and they get paid to do it. I mean, once I handed over the HR to these two people, they were only paid like eight hours a week. One, one of them was in 30 hours last week, managing all of the HR um, and volunteer kind of signups. And obviously, you know, that, most of that was voluntary, but it, all of a sudden it just grew into a department, you know, and, and the finances, I'm now having to hire a financial controller alongside the bookkeeper, alongside the finance director. We've got Sage Payroll and we've got pensions setting up and it's all done by a team of people now. And we might need more of them. Um, and you start to realize then when I started letting go of stuff going, I'm managing like seven different roles here and it's like full-time jobs that, you know, I'm creating out of it for letting go of stuff, but then the organization benefits from it. And obviously it's really difficult because you mentioned it, James Moore, is about the kind of letting go and the power and the control. And um, I still have control of the Real Jumper Project and power in the kind of positive sense. Um, but there are people managing roles and responsibilities within the organization that make the organization more effective. So I've just had an email this morning. I think one of the news agencies wants to come down and do some filming with us. And there's a, there's a PR team that are working on that behind the scenes. So they kind of manage it and go, Adam, are you available on this day? Can they come down? This is what they need to do. Rather than somebody ringing me and going, can we show the camera first? And I'm just going, fuck off and leave me alone because you're doing my head in. I can't do it right now. I'm in a warehouse. And it's just managed and controlled better. Um, but you have to let go. You've got to let go of that ego. You've got to give up control. Um, you've got to not. Re- you've got to realise that relinquish power as such. But um, put, I put myself in a position of CEO, so effectively decisions are made by me. But I allow the autonomy to be made by the team. So that obviously, collectively, we are deciding on where we go next. But it's. I mean, it's taken me seven years to get here. And obviously, like I've mentioned, which I will go into detail about, is that 
probably four or five of these years, I made some huge mistakes, massive mistakes. And I say this to everybody is that even if I wrote a book and told you a thousand ways of how not to run a social enterprise, I still think you should go do it. And I tell everybody, I had a message yesterday from a guy on, on LinkedIn saying, I've got this idea and I've been inspired by what you're doing for ages and I'm really unsure about what to do. What's your advice? I went, just go do it. Go do it. Go learn the mistakes. Get that experience because you'll never do it again and you'll learn from it and you'll be in a much better position. And if you want to do anything else in the future, you'll have that knowledge and experience because it's incredibly valuable. But you, you know as well as I do, you make mistakes and it's just about how you deal with those mistakes and don't repeat those mistakes. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. It really, really is true. And you can sit me in front of fucking Sir Alan Sugar. You can sit me in front of Donald Trump. It doesn't matter what they say because they're not doing this. And even though they can give advice and support, I still think you've got to go do it and learn from it and then deal with it and then act on it as quickly as you can. But then, like I said, building that structure around you so then you can deal with those mistakes and not put it, you know, not happen again. You are going to make mistakes. You're always going to make mistakes. We've got forklift trucks in here now pump trucks we've got shelving at height so we're starting to increase the risk so we've got to put more health and safety in place and more training in place but there will be issues there will be mistakes there, will, there may be accidents that happen um, and it's just about how we deal with it and when it does happen about you know learning from that as quickly as possible making sure it doesn't happen again mm. but it's the only way that we're going to be able to achieve these things is to go out and actually do it and not be frightened about making those mistakes yeah it's the best way to learn isn't it making mistakes failure and all that yeah. sort of thing it's underrated mate 100 um, percent but uh yeah, so it started in Melbourne, what, seven years ago. How did, how did you go from Melbourne to Leeds? And what, what did it look like? How did the model change? So I lived in Leeds yeah. and I bred Leeds. And I moved to Melbourne, obviously, because of the uh, situation that happened. And then I, my son was conceived, uh, Joshua, and I think I stayed out there for another three, four months whilst Joshua's mother came back to the UK and... Um, I just researched, like, I'm about to feed people food that was going in the bin. How do I get around this legally? Um, and just researched it and researched it. And I was working, so I saved up a bit of money. And then I came back to the UK. Um, I think I emailed, I think the story goes, um, and I might not be entirely correct or accurate on this, but it's about 5,000 emails I sent out from Melbourne to people in the UK saying, idea, you're kind of in this sector, what do I do? And I think I got two responses. Um one of them were the group of people who owned the community centre where I set up the first cafe. And the second one was uh, Duncan Milwayne, who's a former lawyer in Leeds, who became a trustee uh, of the Real Truth Project, who's now a friend of mine. Um, and he basically got back to me and said, come and see me in my office. And I think I arrived back in the UK in December. And on the 10th of December, I set up a CIC. Uh, he advised me to do it. And six days later, I opened up the world's first page of fields, surplus food cafe, where anybody could pay as they feel to, to get access to that food. Um, and obviously, from a chefing background, I knew how to run a cafe space, but I had no idea how to run a business, to set up a CIC, any of that stuff, all the legal stuff. I had no idea any of what any of that meant or what it entailed. And, you know, even just like corporation tax and all that stuff, like these things didn't even cross my mind. And I just went and did it and I had nothing, you know, I didn't even have food. I didn't, I, I had all the food in Melbourne. I was cooking on barbecues in Melbourne from some of the restaurants and food outlets that had food that was left over. I was just grabbing it off them and putting it on a barbecue and handing it out to people. And I didn't have a page of concept really. Um, I just basically tell people they can just have it for free. And their attitude to it in Melbourne was very different because in Melbourne they have a much more higher disposable income and maybe less poverty. Um, and people were just like, I don't need it. And I was like, it's not whether you need it or not, it's stopping it from going to waste. And I, I practiced on my kind of language of how I was trying to take it across to people that this isn't about poverty, this is about stopping this amazing food that I've cooked for you from going to waste and me highlighting the environmental issues of that. And they, um, they didn't take to it much in Melbourne, but then I came back to the UK, I got this opportunity in this little cafe in Armley in Leeds, which is, you know, probably one of the most... Uh, what's the best way of putting it? It's not the most affluent of places, let's say. Um, it's got a lot of problems. Drink, drugs, immigration, racism, white working class, poverty, um, all of those things, all literally just piled together in this very, very small town street. And, you know, it was a tinderbox, the whole, the whole thing. It was about to go off at any point. And then there's this, like, 
fucking left-wing kind of environmentalist just dropping in and going, I'm going to feed you all food that's going to go in the bin and you can pay whatever you want. And it's never been done before. And I'm going to do it in like you know, the most controversial places in the world, completely by accident. And it worked, you know, to some degree it worked. Um, the concept worked, the, the practicality of it didn't. Um, we got known as a place where homeless people came or people who were you know, in need and we tried to work really hard on making sure that that wasn't the case. We interacted with a lot of people that didn't necessarily need it, that understood it. But yeah, there was times where it was really difficult. I dealt with some incredible antisocial behaviour. I think I had um, five suicides and a murder happen in four years in, within the cafe or within the cafe environment, either through people that patrons that dined with us or literally the murder happened outside the cafe. Somebody walked past and cut somebody's throat in broad, broad daylight and killed them. Um, so that's how, that's how I was dealing with them. I knew the guy, the guy was called Valdek, and I think I waved to him on the Friday and on the Monday morning, his face was in the paper. Um, and so, yeah, we had to deal with some horrendous things. And that's not why we were there. We were not social workers, we weren't therapists. You know, we wasn't um, uh, kind of trying to f- solve people's problems. We were just trying to stop food waste. And I think the world kind of understood us, but the very, very small place in Armley didn't quite. But without the people in Armley and, and the people that came to down with us, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did. You know, we wouldn't be able to get the exposure and achieve what we did. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, um, it was a very quick transition across from Melbourne. You know, flew back, had a meeting with somebody in an office and then bloody replied to the other email that get, got back to me out of 5,000 and and set up a cafe and, and then somehow I think I went to like a local Morrison's and said have you got any food and I think Sumer as well the big wholesalers the, uh, the cooperative like give me like a van full of yogurts and I was like wow look at this van full of yogurts it's amazing like let's put it in a cafe and somehow get rid of these yogurts um, and then obviously the rest is history it, it, it grew and it grew from there and and, um, and and we owe it all to the people of Amley for giving us that opportunity yeah absolutely it's uh, it's an unbelievable story really yeah. isn't it yeah absolutely yeah and the fact that i was going to ask you this actually but you've already answered it sort of whether it started off as a as a initiative to help people or whether it started off as an environmental initiative i mean you've you've sort of answered that but um, at what point did you realize that kind of these two things were were quite intertwined i'm assuming when you turned up in armley that that's when it started to hit home but i suppose the way that the real junk food project's message now as i understand it is that it's to you know it's environmental, but it's also to help people. So how did that how did that all sort of come together? Well, the projects that I volunteered with in Melbourne um, who were doing init- uh, similar things around surplus food all fed people in need and vulnerable people. And mm. I had real issues with this because I felt like, well, what happens if somebody just falls on their ass randomly and can't claim benefits and, and uh, can't go to a food bank, but they're just in a really shit situation moment in time? Or what happens if there's people who are just kind of like, um, exploiting this, you know, who can just sit at home on a phone in front of a widescreen TV and claim benefits and get food dropped off the house for free. I was like, that doesn't empower them out of the situation whatsoever. I said, you'll get some people that will just think this is a lifestyle, this is fantastic. You'll get some other people that desperately need it, but they might not get caught in the net because there's lots of other people also as well. And I just struggled with it all going, well, how do you ever tell who needs it? And why do we claim to be the ones that have the power over people to do to make those decisions like who am i to say that you deserve food or not when it's a basic human right to have access to food and water um i have got no right at all to say that just because what well, I'm, I'm i'm a ceo of a company or i have more than you do therefore i can dictate what you should or shouldn't have and i question the charities there to their face in front of like people on projects you know even soup kitchens are like why you do, why why are you doing this and they're like oh to feed the people in need are like when does it stop I'm like, oh, you know, when we feed, when we feed all the homeless people, it's like, there's always going to be homeless people. Like, you're never going to stop doing this. Like, this mm-hmm. doesn't solve the problem. And I think I struggled with the fact that even though these are amazing, these people are incredibly altruistic and amazing. You know, people that work in food banks, people that go and stand on the streets or go walk around and give food to homeless, beautiful human beings. Anybody that gives up their time to do that is an incredible human being, but they shouldn't have to do it. And we don't look at the root of the problem and go, how do we solve the problem to stop people like this from having to do this? because people have what they need from a basic human right point of view. So obviously when I came back to the UK, I knew a lot about how I didn't want to do it. And also about the fact that I'd seen waste being grown in Australia. And this is what people are removed from. We're removed from our food, as you, as you rightly know, working in food. People see an end product and then they'll go, oh, fuck it, I'll just throw it in the bin or I'll do whatever I want to do with it. But they don't see the hours of labour and resources and logistics that's gone into getting, you know, I've got a pallet of pineapples in my warehouse right now that I've come all the way from Cuba 
And it's like, you have no relationship with anybody in Hugo Cuba, all the way to the UK, all the way to getting it to this product, to this place here. And then for it to be thrown away unnecessarily because it can no longer be sold. And I said, environmentally, we are stuffing this planet left, right and centre because we create and grow and manufacture far too much food, which comes with packaging, which comes with you know carbon footprint and all the other stuff that you're rightly aware of. And I said, we have to focus on the environment. We have to focus on stopping food waste as an environmental issue because it has got nothing to do with poor people. But what happened as a, about the time that I started it in 2013 was the whole kind of rhetoric ch- shifted in, in the third sector of like, oh, there's all this free food all of a sudden and we've got people that need it. So why don't we just match the two? And then that's great and everybody wins. And I'm going, that's the worst idea ever. Um, don't do that. And there's like all these people going, yeah, let's create more food banks and let's create all these, it's great, there's loads more people with poverty and there's austerity happening. And all of a sudden there's like 2 million people using food banks. And like, yeah, but it's wrong <laughs> because mm-hmm. what's happening now is people are wasting food so that they can feed people in, in need and then getting the credit for it. I'm going, but you're wasting, like, that's not a good thing. And, and people have just shifted their kind of ideology away from the fact that this is creating a huge problem and you're not actually solving the issue from a social perspective because there's now more and more people ever that need support with food and yet we waste more food than ever before. So clearly something is fundamentally wrong and these two things don't work. So obviously with an environmental charity, we've been preaching this and they say so for seven years and it's got to the stages and I think lockdown and COVID happened and helped us out towards the middle of this year when all of a sudden everybody was at home and they couldn't get access to food and people like myself and others were going around and feeding people and delivering isolation packs and giving access to food and people just started to accept that this food was food and not realise that a lot of this was surplus or waste food from the industry and just accepted it and it helped us out massively because then we could use the, the message that we were trying to deliver to say, this is mental, look how much food there is, you know, it's going to waste and, and everything stops, everything stops. So there was all this food everywhere and it, was, it, it helped us out massively. But then what it's done now is coming out of lockdown is because of all these kind of altruistic and, and incredible human beings who have like tried to support their neighbours or, you know, local churches and groups and community centres have all tried to feed people. Now they're expecting that food because they've got a demand for it and they need the supply. And then their supply of waste and surplus has gone higher than ever before because now they've got thousands and thousands of people that need access to it rather than just maybe dozens of people that need access to it locally. And so it's another struggle again for us to get across and say, look, it's great that people need this food and you're helping them and we understand and get that. It's great that you're stopping food from going to waste and I completely understand that. However, we're not solving the problem. No. I have a problem. There will always be poverty and there will always be food waste unless we go to the root of these problems and start to tackle them right at the root and mm. try to understand why a family is at home struggling to put food on their table when we have a welfare system and we have people like myself and others that will go out and deliver food to them. What is fundamentally going wrong? But we don't look at it from that point of view. So that's, that's the thing that we are seeing as these, like, I mean, I got voted, um, I think it was like 2016. I was on the front page of the big issue as one of the top 100 change makers in the UK. And it was like me and Stormzy and other people. It was like proper random, like amazing. And um, I think I've got a certificate out there that basically says I was like an agitator. I think that sums it up really well. In terms I, I, we agitate the people that are very, very comfortable doing what they're doing because I believe right now, publicly i'll say this anyway that there are people right now profiting from poverty there is a lot of money to be made in having poor people and there's a lot of funding out there available there's a lot of people getting awards and credits for it but at the other end of it there are still people struggling there's more homelessness than ever before there's more children going to school hungry than ever before and yet we have all this food and we have all this waste so i believe our food system is a complete paradox we shouldn't have all of those three things happening at the same time in such a tiny little island in one of the largest and richest nations in the, in the world. So our message is always, always very clear that it's just an environmental charity trying to stop food waste. And of course, as you mentioned, James, we're able to feed those people. We're able to feed those, but without creating any further stigma to them. You don't have to be means tested to get food from us. You can purchase a box just like anybody else and you get treated just like everybody else. And your situation is absolutely nothing to do with me. And I will never judge why you ended up in that situation. But just because you're poor, or even if you're rich, why can't you help out, save the planet by getting food that's going to waste and purchasing it from the Real Jumper Project? 
it shouldn't matter about your financial situation. We should all be doing this together. So we've tried to create a concept where everybody can be a part of it, no matter of your status or how much money you've got in the bank. And I think we're now seeing the benefits of that, of people realising that they can all have a part to play in the bigger picture, regardless of their circumstances. Yeah. I, th- I think actually on the food waste thing, I think it's understated in this country how bad it, the, the situation is, especially surplus food. Because I remember there's two events that stick out in my mind. Back years ago, this was before food surf and stuff, uh, at work going to see uh, manufacturing sites. And uh, they had, it's no, no band, I'm not going to mention the brands obviously, and there's no band that works with us now, but they had like, Six pallets in like the dispatch area, all palleted up, shrink wraps, branding on there, ready to go. And I was just like, I was doing a site tour as, as part of my job, and I was like, oh, where's where's that going to? And they're like, it's going in the bin. Honestly, God, it's unbelievable. I, it's, I'll never forget it. It's scary. And it's like it was in day. Uh, it's just oh my god, it's sickening. Honestly, mm. um, it's. I think they're trying to work on it, and there's obviously been some big steps made recently. Um, but yeah, so there's, it's, it's ridiculous, and I'm sure you've had similar experiences with it. Well, I can take you now to the warehouse. There's um, <laughs> there you go. Six yeah. times three is what 100, and there's, and there's five aisles. There's probably close to 550 pallets sat right now, and we've just delivered nearly 5,000 hampers, which is what 50 to 60 tons of food have just gone out of our doors, and yet there's still 550. So I reckon there's what 250 tons of food sat on the shelves right now. There's food coming in right now, and that's pretty much it. We should be empty right now. We've just delivered thousands of hampers. Even the HR team was like, why is there still lots of food in the warehouse? We've just delivered thousands and thousands of hampers. And I was like, because the, the problem is out of control. This country is absolutely out of control. It's hidden from us. The facts are manipulated. The data is manipulated. It suits the uh, supplier. It suits the individual. Um, I think a lot of the data is lost. You know, we're not collecting yeah. those to from places and you know the 15 million tons of food that we get waste every in the uk from rap i've told rap a million times that's you know that's probably a quarter of what i'm aware of let alone all the other um and i see places i go to places i go to warehouses that no one's ever heard of in the most random places owned by business owners who have just been given 500 pallets of a certain product and it's close to its shelf life but they can't get rid of it but they've bought it for a penny a tin and they're going to get rid of it at like 10 tins for a quid. Um, but they only need to sell two pallets of it to make the money back, and they've been given 500 pallets, and they don't know what to do with the rest of it, or they don't know the waste is too high, so they don't know how to dispose of it correctly. And then they ring people like me up and say, what can you do with it? And it's just like, you got these places. I know there's a place right now in Leicester, which is the size of an airport. It's 16 football pitches, and it's stacked to the ceiling of food that's gone past best before. And I can just pick up the phone now, and I can order 26 pallets of it to come to me now. And within the next four hours, I'll get a pallet, of, a lorry of 26 pallets of confectionery and sweets and chocolates and dry goods of, of a drop of a phone call. I can order waste. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's mental. I mean, uh, this might be a, tr- a tr- tricky one because you're obviously not, you know, you're not um, in the cabinet, but I'm sure you'll have a view on it. Um, what, what, what is the kind of, I don't know, what's, what's the answer to this? Because we've got, it seems to me like we've just got a load of stuff in the wrong place. We've got loads of food, but we've got loads of people struggling. Um, and, and, and we're one of the most, uh, ri- we're one of the most wealthy um, societies on, on the planet. But yeah. yet we've still got um, a homeless problem and a hunger problem that just won't go away. So, yeah. what what do you think the root of this this is? What 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 do you what would you what would you do if you were you know benign dictator of this country? What what do you think you would? Um, what's the first thing you think you'd do? Um, wow! Imagine I always <laughs> give it premise what was first for you doing. Like I, I do like stupid stuff. Like I don't know. I'd buy Ellen Road or something like. I'd take over Leeds United and. Uh, you know, there'd be Champions League winners night next year, for example. Focus. Um, <laughs> I'd be like homelessness. No, no, no. Um, I, I think this, I think the answer is really easy. I think it's really, really, really easy, and um, it comes down to uh, profit. It's as simple as that. And I think that if there was no way of making profit from food and allowing waste to be factored into that as a percentage on a spreadsheet it would not happen. If the people making vast volumes of food lost money from doing it, they wouldn't do it. It's as simple as that. So you can put all the legislation you want in the world. You can bang against their doors. You can get all the media exposure. You can do anything you want. You can make all these people look like absolute villains, but they make profit 
from doing this. And, you know, we went to a, a retailer, one of their supermarkets, spoke to their operations manager, and he said, our turnover one week is a million pound, and our waste is about 3%. So on a spreadsheet, it looks great, doesn't it? And I'm like, that's 30,000 pounds worth of food at cost, not at retail, at cost that you waste every week. And, and this is one of the, the top stores. It's not one of the kind of the mid-range ones. This was one of the top high-end stores. And I'm like, but that's like um, like some of the best food I know within retail, £30,000 a week at cost that you're throwing away because you turn over a million pounds. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but especially it looks really, really great and that's really good for our figures and stuff. I was like, but that's £30,000 worth of food from one store. Now imagine how many stores these guys got and then imagine how many different retailers there are. And then when you put it all together, you start realising the quantities that are wasted day in, day out. I mean, this wasn't just that food. It was like the very best food, uh, if you get me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... And I'm stood there with it and I'm going, but this is like a box of chocolates, like 10 quid. And he's like, yeah, 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 but it's still 3% on a spreadsheet. You know, we're trying to manage that and, and by the decimal point. And I'm still going, it just doesn't matter, does it? Because they make the money. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And like I just mentioned to you earlier, I know a guy who'll buy 26 pallets. He'll take the label off each tin. He'll, he'll buy it a penny a tin. He'll wrap 10 tins together, sell 10 tins for a quid. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's got a what, 1,000% uptake, whatever it is, on, on, on a single tin. He's, he's, he's made his money. And all he has to sell is like four to eight pallets, and he's making his money back on the entire 26 pallets. And I've said to him, what do you do with it normally? He goes, oh, I'll just incinerate it. I'll, I'll throw it away. I was like, why? He went, oh, I can make all my profit on like a quarter of this stock, and I can buy it you know, really, really cheap because these people just need to get rid of it. So even the people that are buying the waste can still make profit off of it and still end up with waste. Because we produce and make far too much food on this planet for the amount of people that we have. And like you said there, James, quite rightly so, the figures that come out globally, a billion tons wasted worldwide, and yet there's a billion people that don't have access to food. And I went, why don't you just feed the people the billion tons of food that's going to waste? Then everybody has food. Surely that's how it works. And then when you get into it, and obviously you guys are, are involved as much as I am in the industry, you just start realizing about the bureaucracy and the layers and the nonsense and the red tape and all of this stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, there's going to be something that goes without and there's going to be food that goes to waste. And it literally comes down to, you know, your margins. And if your margins are high, why would you care? And it's factored in. You know, we already know that retailers factor in at the beginning of their financial years a percentage because of theft, waste, accidental damage, all this stuff comes into play. But the volumes of it are completely out of control. And as you said, Paul, like, it's because we've got so much of everything. Like, why do we need, like, a million different types of, like, a product on a shelf? You know, there's millions and millions of one variety. When we had lockdown the first time, I remember there were just shelves of pasta. It was, it was pasta and a bit of fucking bread, and that was, a bit, that was about it. And I was like, why did, you, why did you want to stock? I went to a couple of retailers. And went, why did you want to stock that? And they were like, well, that's all what people needed. I went, exactly. Yeah. That's all. I'm not trying to become a kind of communist, socialist, bloody state where you just provide people with what they need. But the variety. I mean, I've gone to places where they've offered me to come and be on a panel for new product development, and I've gone, you really don't want my opinion on this because <laughs> I what I feel about it. And I I, I destroyed them. I don't even think they exist. I didn't do it intentionally to be a dick, but I went there and they basically, they made an egg that was boiled and covered it in wax. And you've got a sachet of seasoning to go with it. And each sachet had a different flavor. So you had like a chili one and a salt and pepper one. And you got two eggs in a pack and they lasted for like months because it was wrapped in this wax. And I stood there and went, who hasn't got time to boil an egg? And who's going to go out and buy a boiled egg? And then I was like, what are you thinking? Like... And they'd made thousands of them, thousands and thousands around pallets. And they even like, oh, we want to donate some to the real junk food projects. And I was like, I don't, no one's going to eat this shit. This is why you're giving it to me because it's, mm-hmm. no one's going to eat it. And it made me realize that, especially the big players in the game, the really big players, they can just make something up and they can just go and sell thousands of them or not sell thousands of them, at least make thousands of them. And if they sell it, they sell it. If they don't, they don't. You know, there's a product right now of a white chocolate uh, cereal that used to be a, a normal chocolate cereal it's now a white chocolate cereal and it's rubbish no one eats it my, my son won't even eat it it tastes crap we get thousands of them thousands and thousands and thousands of boxes of these things because they're rubbish but this company knows that it can just go create another product and make thousands of them and then if it, if it don't sell it don't sell and that's the problem we have far too much food far too much variety and there's too much profit to be made from waste and it's yeah. and it's 
up until we start to have an impact on that. Yeah, I yeah. think it gets underreported as well. In the media, they like to focus, I notice, they always focus on like household waste, don't they? Oh. Like, oh, your banana skins are thrown away. There's so much of it. It's all household waste. It's just the absolute tip. Slices tip of, of bread as well. It's the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Just well, like. yeah, and what you, the figures you just mentioned are just retail as well. I mean, there's all, underneath that, there's distribution, there's manufacturing, you know, yeah. there's grow, growers. There's all these different channels where this stuff comes from. All the, all the, all the hospitality industry. Yeah. Oh, I don't even get me started on that at the minute as well. That's just going to be, that's going to go through the roof as well because of the hospitality well, being decimated it, this year. And the thing is, we will get back to some norm. We, we know that there will be. And I'm pretty sure that if everybody had the opportunity to go out now and be normal, we would probably go back to restaurants and cafes again. You know, we probably can't wait and restaurants and cafes again. Um, so I believe hospitality will come back. But what do people think has been happening to all that food in the meantime? Because yeah. that one calls galore saying, can you shift 56 tonnes of, I don't know, 10 litre pergols of milk? And I was like, pergols of milk? Like, they belong in coffee machines. What the bloody hell am I meant to do with these things? And then you think to yourself, well, when it kickstarts again, where's all that food going to come from? Where's it being stored? How's it going to get there? Um, you've got shelf life on things. You've got, you know, packaging on things. You've got the, just the space to store these type of things. And we're removed from it all. And that's just hospitality. You know, think about all the restaurants, all the cafes, all the places where you take aways. Where did that, where does all that food come from? And how is it being managed and where is it being stored? And where, what's the waste involved in it? How do we restart it all again in some way, shape, form? Because it's going to explode again. And then all that comes with waste and excess and all the other stuff that comes with it. It's just an ever vicious circle of waste. Yeah, I think excess is the word, isn't it? I mean, that story that you just told about the egg product with the seasoning and everything like that and stuff that we don't need or just the fact that, I don't know, as a society, we I suppose this year has been a bit of a shock to the system, but we've been so we've become so comfortable that anything that's just convenient, you know, it's um, and more convenient might, you know, has got a chance of doing well because we just, uh, we talked about it actually on one of our previous episodes about exercise and stuff like that. Like if something's easy, you'll do it because it's easier. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we've got to that point now where kind of people that make food or any products know that and yeah. um, take advantage of it because it's like, well, if we can make an egg that's pre-boiled and um, people can stick it yeah. in a microwave or whatever, um, it's going to sell. And that's that's what yeah. leads to these ideas, I think, because there's a... It's not convenient at all because no. it generates vast quantities of waste. I don't know who it's conveniencing, but it certainly isn't conveniencing the planet. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely. We're going to... Uh... We're going to wrap up shortly, mate, but just want to ask you, what, um, what's the Real Junk Food Project doing now? What's, you know, 2020, 2021, what's uh, been your focus? What community projects have you been focusing on um, this year and, what, and what's to come? So obviously we, um, uh, we, we dealt with the consequences of lockdown. So yeah. we opened uh, two social supermarkets, a warehouse and a cafe during lockdown. Um, which was amazing. You know, if anything, personally and professionally, we've done very well. And um, I think there was a, a thing called hashtag smug yesterday on, and on, on Twitter and, and on the radio, which was talking about people just saying, well, actually, I didn't do too bad out of this. And we always talk about the negatives. And I think maybe in business, we can talk a little bit about some of the positives. And we've had 2.5 million people during lockdown, um, obviously stopped a vast quantity of food, developed and built new relationships with we've, we've met yourselves um, this year and, and working alongside yourselves. So there is some, you know, real beneficial uh, things to come out of it. We've, um, we're doing the Kindness Christmas appeal now. We're doing delivering 13,000 hampers for free across the whole of West Yorkshire using nothing but surplus food. And that's no questions asked. Anybody gets a box no matter what. And, you know, we're working on that at the moment. I think we're currently doing between 460 and 500 a day and we needed to do 550 a day to reach our target, so we're not too far off. And that's all volunteer drivers, surplus food, and volunteers building boxes, so it's, it's incredible. And because we did that at, like, full speed, full capacity, completely chaos, we've monitored it and kind of viewed it and tried to understand how people behave and how they work and what we can achieve and what we can do and what costs us and, you know, what's realistic. And hopefully we've had a, a meeting this week where hopefully next year... We think that we are going to adapt our model into similar to what we just spoke about then about 
convenience, but kind of giving people an opportunity and a, and a choice. And I think that's what the real drug projects always try to achieve, especially with the supermarket model is if you want to do something for the bigger picture, environmentally, to feel good, then what do you do? You know, recycle, turn your lights off, you know, have a shower instead of a bath, all the stuff that we get drilled into us. But people want to do more, they want to give back more, and they want to surplus food is obviously quite a buzz thing in terms of people using it instead of going out and purchasing food from retailers and the food industry. So obviously the cost of lockdown and, and, and um, because of the restrictions of people moving around and getting access to food, we've benefited from supplying boxes to people's houses, to having share houses, to collection points and et cetera, and built relationships where we've built these hubs. So we think going forward, um, we will create more and more hubs where people get access to food locally. That is surplus food and, but at a price rather than through the pay-as-you-feel model, um, which will obviously generate income and support for us like to build the staff and the infrastructure to be able to do that. And the big thing for us is the growing. So just behind me is a 1,000-square-foot community farm. So every location that we sign up for uh, in terms of a new premises, we, the, the spec of it isn't necessarily the location or the, the size of the building. It's can we build a farm, can we grow food on it? And, and for that, that's going to be really pivotal because as we spoke about, for me, the greatest form of activism is to grow your own food. Um, and if we can achieve that and start using some of these boxes and the catering and the food that we supply into schools with the food that we grow, and then we can turn around to the industry and say, we don't need to deal with your waste anymore because we're managing to supply people through food grown, through the composting waste of your stuff that you throw away. Um, that's the biggest shift for me, I think. And if you can tap into that kind of supply and demand structure, and kind of shift people's perspective and behaviours and attitudes away from thinking I have to just go out to a express store and buy these convenient foods and that's my meal deal and, and that's it and that's my you know thing for the day and, and I've no understanding or relationship to their food. I think if you can shift that away from I managed to get a box delivered to me uh, at my local hub or I had to go speak to somebody and I purchased it so I felt empowered. And this food has been generated from surplus food, but also food that's been grown locally in my area using patchwork farming and rooftop gardening and little community gardens. Um, and then potentially look at growing that across a bigger scale across not just the UK, but across the world. Um, I think then I can turn around and probably say to people, um, we, we, we can feed the world. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. It really is. Yeah. How, how do people get involved? Adam, if, there's, if someone's listening to this and they're in Leeds and they want to get involved with you guys, um how, how do they how do they get in touch with you don't message me uh, <laughs> oh i'm having some time off um trjfp.com which is our new uh website which was built by uh amy who's now got a business called two cows web i think it's called i can't remember a business name but an amazing woman who built our website for us and she's also a volunteer so a bit of a plug for her and um trjfb.com everything's on there for how to purchase a box all the way to volunteering to all of our staff all of our governance who all the people are that are part of this and any updates like the kindness christmas event and videos and things that we do um, are on there and all of our friends and people that we work with i think you guys are not on there yet but i'll try and get you on there as soon as possible yeah. uh, obviously we want to collaborate and share and obviously it gets a lot of exposure and a lot of attention so we like to try and get back as much as we can as well so um trjfb.com or obviously social media channels hmm. Brilliant. Yeah, well, from our point of view, mate, it's great to be um, collaborating with you. I know it's been in the works for a bit because we've been we've been talking a bit for a while, but um, it's great to finally be doing it. And yeah, just keep up all the great work you're doing for other people and for our planet because uh, we need people like you doing this work because otherwise we just the problem just continues and nobody um, nobody highlights it. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. Thank Inspirational stuff. Love Thank it. You having me and uh, yeah keep up the great work you're doing hopefully we can work closely together more in the future as well absolutely we will do. have a great christmas mate and um yeah you too yeah thank you cheers, cheers adam take care cheers, thank mate. you mate Bye. so i enjoyed that that was great yeah really good um lots of things for people to take away there i think around not only food waste food access all that sort of stuff that we talked about but adam's um, story. I mean, I didn't know quite the um, the depths of it. I don't know about you, but uh, really inspiring how he sort of turned his his life around from a difficult position. Um, really inspiring, uh, and also anybody that's um, running or is part of a business or an organisation or a social enterprise or a charity, um, lots in there that you can take away about um, how to scale that up and how to not just be the person doing everything. 
uh, which is really good advice, I think, for any business and and something that I certainly took um, a lot away from as well. So, yeah, really good episode. Um, Yeah, and I hope everybody enjoyed it. Um, Please give us a a good rating, five-star rating, if you liked it. No less than five-star. Yeah. Absolutely not. If you're thinking about giving less than five-star, email us and we'll try and do better in the future. Um, And, yeah, I just want to say happy Christmas to anybody that's listening as well. Yeah. um, Because this will be out just before Christmas. If you Um, celebrate Christmas. If you celebrate Christmas. If not, have a lovely festive season. Hopefully you get some time off. Um, And although it's a weird year this year, hopefully you get some time with loved ones or just some time to relax and do whatever you want. Drink (laughs) responsibly. Show me jumper for anybody that's on YouTube. There you go. Celebrate responsibly. responsibly. Thank you. Yeah, that's the message. Uh, Enjoy yourself, but always be responsible. All right. Thank you for listening. And uh, I don't know if we're going to have another one out before the new year. So if not, we'll see you in 2021. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thank you.